Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are planning this morning to have a communion service, particularly for those folks who, for one reason or another, were not available last month when we had our annual communion service. Turn to Romans 14, if you would, because I recognize that here at GCA, we have put a great deal of emphasis on the yearly aspect of communion, that it is an annual thing, that it is connected inextricably to Passover, a -a once-a-year memorial. And so, there are folk who are here in the room who last month participated in our annual communion, who may be thinking at this moment, well then, Why would I do that again a month later? And so what I want to begin with this morning is to let you know that it really is up to you. However, there have been circumstances in my life, the same as there are circumstances that kept people from being at our annual communion last month. There have been circumstances in my life where having participated in the communion once in the year, that then there were special occasions where communion was appropriate yet again. For instance, there were occasions when we had people who were sick, who were homebound, and I would go take the communion elements to those people. And then as I guided them through the communion participation, I would take the communion yet again with them as I led them through it. Charlie and Kenneth, at their wedding, asked if they could have communion. I did not say to them, no, it's a once a year thing, and no, you cannot do that. They wanted to honor Christ in the midst of their wedding so that they could demonstrate that he was first in their wedding and in their marriage. So, of course, that was completely appropriate. So the way that I view it is the once-a-year communion is the base necessity. That is what GCA does every year, no matter what. That is fundamental to... Christian church behavior. But if there are special occasions during which communion is appropriate, I will gladly participate. But I don't expect all of you necessarily to have the same conviction. What I want you to do is be convinced in your own heart. Here's the way Paul puts it. 
in Romans 14, he talks about those who are stronger in the faith and those who are weaker in the faith. At the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about eating particular meats, especially meats that might be sacrificed to idols, meats that could be bought in the shambles, in the marketplace, that may have been sacrificed to an idol. Some people would be willing to eat meat. Some would, would just be vegetarian. And so he is arguing that within the church, nobody should judge the other for how they conduct themselves, provided that both those who eat the meat and those who don't both do it unto the Lord. Same thing then, he says, when it comes to holy days, when it comes to Sabbaths, Christ is our Sabbath. The holy days as part of the law are no longer binding on our conscience. And yet, because the early church was primarily Jewish, there were still people who were convinced that they should observe some of those holy days. In men's group, just this past Tuesday, we talked about how Paul wanted to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So here was Paul, the great preacher of the grace of God, still wanting to keep Pentecost in Jerusalem because of his Jewish heritage. And so there were conflicts in the early church. We're free. We're free in Christ. We're free to do whatever we want versus, well, but I still want to observe some of those holy days because they still have a connection to me, and that is how I worship God. Paul's argument is whether you observe a particular holy day or not, as long as your conscience is doing it unto the Lord, then there's no judgment either way. Here's how he puts it, starting at verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day the same, every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind, in his own conscience. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So Paul, in arguing for unity within the church, and arguing that we don't have the right, we don't have the jurisdiction to judge one another, considering that we each belong to the Lord and that we will give an answer to our master, not to each other, says that when it comes to questions of conscience, like what you should eat or whether you should keep a holy day or whether you should participate in today's communion, be fully convinced in your own mind. 
Now, I'm going to be talking for the next 45 minutes or so. During that time, you'll have time to think about it. Would you like to participate today if you have participated last month? If you were unavailable last month, would you like to participate today? Just make sure that whatever you decide, you've decided that with a clear conscience before the Lord. And if you have that clear conscience before the Lord, you are welcome to join us or not. It's up to your individual conscience. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, if you would. We will be spending most of the morning here in 1 Corinthians because the communion service is all about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, is where you're headed. One of the uh, criticisms that is raised against the historic validity of Jesus and of Christianity is people will attack the idea of the crucifixion and the resurrection. One of the ways, of course, that they will attack it is to try to attack it historically and to say that it is the result of historic development. In other words, there were true accounts of Jesus' life But then over the course of years, those accounts were corrupted, they will claim. And then historic development created the idea of a Messiah who came to the planet, who died and rose again. That is the very core of Christianity. If you can eliminate the idea of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, then you have successfully undermined Christianity. If all Jesus is, is another philosopher, another guy in shoe leather with good ideas, then when he was crucified, that helped nobody. But if he is who he claims that he is, and then he died and then he raised again, then that separates him from the entire rest of humanity and identifies him as the singular son of God. It also demonstrates that God accepted his sacrifice. So not only is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ fundamental to our belief of who Christ was and what he accomplished, but we also see it theologically as the guarantee, the surety of our own salvation. If he died and didn't get up again, he saves nobody. But the fact that Christ died and then raised again is the surety that God accepted the sacrifice that he made and therefore he brought about the inception of the new covenant which God has accepted. His blood was the surety of that covenant and that means now that salvation is a result of grace and faith and no longer are we bound to the works of the law the way that Israel was. There are very important theological considerations tied to this idea of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So important, in fact, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we are going to look this morning at one of the earliest creeds of the church. What that means is 
A creed is a common confession, something that people all agree to, that they confess, this is what I believe. I believe this very thing. You're going to find that creed right here in 1 Corinthians 15. But we have to start by asking whether the book of 1 Corinthians is even valid. Is that the result of historic development. Is this whole Christian thing, the story of Christ, the story of his death, burial, and resurrection, is that the result of later church councils arguing about who Christ is and what he did and then developing the notion that he died, buried, and resurrected again? Can we find really, really early attestation and proof of the fact that Jesus was an actual person who actually lived, who actually died, and who actually got up again? Well, I'm going to argue that the Corinthian letters are exactly that. There are 13 books in the New Testament that bear Paul's name. There are what are known as textual critics, critics of the Bible who look at the text of the Bible to try to determine the veracity of those texts. And even among the skeptics of the textual critics, they admit that at least six or seven of those 13 letters, and I mean the hard critics, they have to admit that at least six or seven of the letters in the New Testament were actually written by Paul. We know more about Paul historically than any other New Testament writer. We know who he is. We know where he's from. He's Saul of Tarsus. We know his background. We know that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. We know that he was killing Christians. We know all of that. And because we know that about his history, we also then can be amazed by the fact that this one who was so adamantly opposed to Christianity has written so much of the New Testament in favor of Christianity, that he went through some kind of conversion. And according to his own story, that conversion happened because the risen Lord encountered him, stopped him blinded him, knocked him down, converted him. And therefore, his theology is all based on that cataclysmic conversion. Now, of these six or seven letters that even the skeptics will say have to be Pauline, the Corinthian letters are two of the letters that everybody across the board, you won't find anyone, even the really critical folks, the Bart Ehrmans of the world, they admit that Paul wrote the Corinthian letters. Okay, well, that's really interesting because the Corinthian letters can also be placed in time. Here's what I mean by that. The book was probably written around 54 to 55 AD. In it, Paul recounts that he was teaching there in Corinth. He doesn't give us the date, but we know it was just a couple of years before the letter was written. And he is responding to things that were brought up while he was there. And he says things like, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things. So now we know that Paul was in Corinth, the early 50s, that he was writing 54, 55 AD. Now, why do we know that? How can we be so convinced of those dates? Well, Paul says that he stayed with a couple whose names were Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were originally from Rome. They fled Rome when the Emperor Claudius drove all the Jews out of Rome. And that's why we know exactly when they happened to be living in Corinth. 
And Paul says that when he was in Corinth, he stayed with them because they were tent makers and he was a tent maker. So that gives us a really, really good time frame because then the emperor Claudius allowed the Jews to come back to Rome. He expelled them in 49 AD. Okay, so if Paul meets up with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, then it has to be after 49 AD. And if it's just a couple years before he writes this letter, that puts us right there in the early 50s somewhere that Paul had to have been in Corinth. And a couple years later, he wrote this letter. So we, we have really, really good historic evidence for when this letter was written. So if Jesus died around 30 to 33 AD, we don't know for sure because our calendars these days are just so wacky. Our calendar is just so peculiar and has been changed so many times. The examples that I like to give, what does in the Latin language, what is septa? Septa is clearly seven. Right. What is octa? Eight. Eight. Nueve. Nine. Deca. Ten. Decimal ten. We know that. That would be seven, eight, nine, ten. Which are the ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth months in our calendar. Which makes no sense at all that the ninth month of our year is called seven. And that the tenth month of our year is called eight. That's how wacky our calendars have become. Do you know why it is? It's because both Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar decided to have months named after themselves and inserted themselves into the calendar. We call it July and August for Julius and Augustus, which pushed all the numeric months backwards. And so we live by this very silly calendar. We also don't really know where the transition from B.C. to A.D. exactly happened. It was an early church council a couple of hundred years after Christ that decided to start marking years from the birth of Christ. But they went back and started looking at the movement of the moon and lunar eclipses, and based on that, they decided that Jesus probably died around 33 A.D. As time has gone by, now that we have computers and create models and, and we can turn the universe backwards and see how things work, now we know that it was probably around 31 A.D. Some experts argue that it may be as early as 30 A.D. So we know that Jesus died somewhere between what we would call 30 and 33 A.D. My point is, how long is it? Let's take the earliest date, 30 A.D., until Paul is in Corinth in 51 AD. That's 21 years. There's no time for historic development. There's no time for church councils to insert excess theology in order to save face or to make Christianity a respected world religion. And in fact, when Paul writes this letter, within 20 years of the actual events, and remember that Paul has already been 
to Jerusalem. He's already met with the apostles. He's already heard the details of the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And yet when he writes this, he says, now here's something that's agreed among all of us. When did that happen? When did this early creed develop that is known among all Christians that they all agree on? When did that early creed get created, get written? Well, that means it happened sometime during those 20 years, which pushes the date of the acceptance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ even earlier forward. Again, there's no time for historic development. Instead, what there is, is very, very early attestation to the basis of Christianity, which is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, lived and died and was buried and rose again and sailed off the planet. That is agreed to within the time that an average kid goes to school from kindergarten to college. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about a really, really short period of time. So I'm arguing that these are really, really trustworthy words that we are about to read. Because there is no time for people to have imagined something. Also, by the way, remember that as Paul is writing this, as he is distributing this information, there are people alive who would know whether that was true or not. There are still people alive who would be able to say, no, 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 no. That's not how it happened. Especially among the Jews in Jerusalem. The people who would be most skeptical. And yet, astoundingly, nowhere in written history do we find any documents where anybody argues with Paul's account. They may say, I don't believe it. But they don't argue that this is what Paul encountered. That Paul went from being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Christ-hating Jewish guy who was willing to kill Christians to stamp out the way. And then he literally wrote this letter in which he testifies to the basis of Christ living, dying, resurrecting again. That happened in time and nobody argues about it. Nobody says that that story of Paul is a fantasy. You understand what I'm getting at? The reason that we have faith in these words is not just because we got together and in some sort of blind faith decided, you know what, this is what we're going to agree on. We have faith because these words are testifiably, verifiably, historically accurate and true. And the testimony for these words, the deeper you dig into it, is undeniable. So knowing all that, let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's going to corroborate several things here. I know I said, let's look at it. And we're going to, trust me, we're going to get to it. Paul corroborates many of the things that we read later in the Gospels. When we think about the life and ministry of Christ, we think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we oftentimes think, well, that's stuff that the Gospel writers wrote. But Paul wrote before any of the four Gospels were written. And yet he verifies the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that the later writers of the Gospels actually write about. 
He writes that Jesus was born a Jew. You can read about that in Galatians 4.4. He writes that Jesus was betrayed in 1 Corinthians 11.23. He writes that Jesus was crucified. That's Galatians 3.1, 1 Corinthians 2.2, Philippians 2.8. He writes about it a lot. He writes that Jesus was buried and then he rose again here in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 6, 4. In other words, he has all the fundamentals of genuine Christianity and writes about them before the gospel writers had even begun distributing their information. So Paul verifies in all of his writing the very fundamentals of Christianity that we so frequently think are the result of later gospel writers. All right, let's read. Now I make known to you, brethren. He's writing to brethren. He's writing to those who have the same common faith. I'm writing to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you when I was there with you. 51, 52 AD. When I was there, I told you this good news. Now I'm making it known to you yet again. This gospel which you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. By the way, I want to make a fine point here. He is not saying that simply the recitation of the gospel is what saves people. He's saying the focus of the gospels, the focus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the elements, the events that the gospel is talking about is what saves you. Jesus saves. The gospel is about Jesus. Therefore, he can say, this is the gospel you stand in by which you're saved. By which you are saved if you cling to it, if you hold fast to the word which I proclaim to you, which I preach to you, unless you believed it all in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Notice how Paul places this. He's about to declare the fundamental gospel, the earliest creed of the Christian church. And in declaring it, he says, it is of first importance. That's not first chronologically. He's saying that is of primary importance. Whatever else you want to talk about, if you want to talk about eschatology, the gospel is first. If you want to talk about ecclesiology and how we do church, the gospel is first. Whatever else you may want to think about, and however complicated or simple you may make it, the gospel that Paul is about to elucidate is of primary importance. I delivered to you when I was with you that which is of first importance, that which I received. Notice that he says, that which I also received. I heard it. I learned it. He either learned it directly from Christ. We know that he was three years on the backside of nowhere, he may have learned it there. He may have learned it when he was in Jerusalem and talking to the other apostles and they were telling him all about the events of Jesus' life. 
But here's what's of most importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Not only that Christ died for our sins, but he is arguing this is not something we made up. This is something that is already written in the scriptures. Now, when Paul uses the word scriptures, he's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. He said it's already attested to in the Old Testament that Christ was going to die. And sure enough, he did. And that was not an accident. That was not an aberration in history. That was exactly what God said had to happen in his own word. That's of primary importance. Christ died for our sins. Nobody else can say that. If Kellen walks in here one day and says to us, my death is going to solve what is wrong with everybody else on the planet, we're going to look at him askance. And then we're going to put him in a little room with padded walls and look at him through a hole in the door every once in a while as we shove food his way. Because he's gone around the bend and he's not coming back anytime soon. If he believes that about himself, and yet Jesus walked around saying exactly things like that. His sense of who he was, his explanation of himself was that his death, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the sins of all those who God had chosen since before the foundation of the world. Paul testifies that that is true, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. We're reading Isaiah on Wednesday nights. We're about to finally get to Isaiah 53. We're creeping up on it. We're in Isaiah 42 this week. So we're getting closer to it. That is a clear testimony of the death of Christ. And so Paul can rightly say the scriptures already declared the death of Christ for sins because even Isaiah declares he was wounded for our iniquities. He wasn't dying because of anything he did. He was personally sinless and spotless, unblemished. So he died for our sinfulness. He died for our iniquity according to the scripture. And of first importance, I declared to you that he was buried. Why is that so important? Why does Paul always take the time to say, and he was buried? Because we say he died, he was buried, and he resurrected again. Why is that middle element so very important? It's because you don't bury people who you don't believe are dead. The only reason that they went through the effort of burying him is because the actual eyewitnesses, the people who were actually there, the people who took him down off the cross, the people who put him in the close-by borrowed tomb, all did all of that because they were convinced he was dead. The Roman soldiers were convinced he was dead. That's why they put a spear through his heart, so that he was justifiably, verifiably dead. And so Paul always includes that element that he was buried because the witnesses believed he was dead. But then, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
the scriptures themselves said that he was going to be raised on the third day. That's why Jesus walking on the Emmaus Road and coming across a couple of his disciples, when he asked them what they were talking about, they were amazed because the women had told them that the tomb that Jesus was laid in was now empty, and they were marveling at it. And he said to them, oh, slow of heart, foolish people who are slow to believe everything the scripture says. So Jesus himself then takes the time to show them everything in the Old Testament having to do with himself and his death and his burial and his resurrection because the scriptures declare that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried in a borrowed tomb with the rich in his death and that he was going to rise again according to the scriptures and then he appeared. Why is that so important? He appeared to the same eyewitnesses who believed he was dead. The same eyewitnesses who buried him, who were convinced of his death, are the same eyewitnesses who got to see him alive again. So there is actual eyewitness testimony. Now, I think George will agree with me here that you can't get better evidence in a court case than eyewitness testimony. Correct? Correct. Correct. If you can get somebody who says, I saw it. I'm giving my first-hand account of what I actually witnessed and experienced. You don't get better testimony than that, and you don't get better historic attestation of something than eyewitness testimony. So now Paul says, oh yeah, and there's eyewitnesses to all this. And those people are still alive. They would know whether I was telling the truth or not. They would know whether this is what actually occurred or not. This gospel, this short phraseology that Paul uses here that he calls of first importance, this first importance information, forms what is the earliest creed of the church. He's simply reciting what they all recited, which is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. That's the earliest Christian creed. And it declares everything you need to know to have genuine Christianity. If you believe, if you understand, if you are convinced that Jesus, the Messiah, was actually on the planet, actually died, was literally buried, and then actually, literally, physically got up to live again, then you know that he died for your sin and that God accepted his sacrifice by the fact that he raised again and that there are eyewitnesses to that very fact. So the church started using that as a creed so that they could recite exactly what they all believed. That's the essence of what Christian belief is right there. Did anybody here, other than me, grow up with the Apostles' Creed? Okay, then you know what the Apostles' Creed is. The Apostles' Creed, by the way, was not written by the Apostles. But it is, in its oldest form, the earliest of the Christian creeds that was developed by the church. It goes back to 140 A.D. And so church leaders summed up the beliefs that they all had so that they could all stand for the same faith 
so that they could declare the same things. Does anybody here remember the words of the Apostles' Creed? It was actually drilled into my memory as a young catechumen in the Lutheran church. Here are the words. See if you agree. Because by the way, I do. I will tell you that the word Catholic is used in the earliest of the creeds, the Apostles' Creed. That does not mean Roman Catholic. This was written before the Roman Catholic Church existed. The word Catholic means the church universal, all the church. This is what we believe. There is also the phrase, he descended into hell. The earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed don't have that phrase. But later church councils were trying to answer the question, well, then where was Jesus while his body was in the grave? What was he doing? What ministry did he have during that time? The ministry of Christ after his death and prior to his resurrection is talked about in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, and in 1 Peter 4, 6, which speaks of Christ preaching to the souls in prison who were dead. Ephesians 4, 8 and 9, which we just read, speaks of Christ descending into the lower earthly regions. Psalm 16, 9 and 10 says, you will not let your Holy One see decay or corruption. Now you put all that together and it looks like Jesus was very active during the time that he died and was put in the grave and the time that he rose up again. And so the phrase, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. He descended into Hades. He descended into hell was added to the Apostles' Creed. But the Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty. So far, so good? Yes. We agree with that. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. It's one of the ways that he identifies himself over and over in the Bible, the maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Everybody good with that? Yes. Then the creed goes on to identify him, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. They made sure to include all three elements. Crucified, that's how he died. He was actually dead, and he was buried because the eyewitnesses believed he was dead. Then you see the phrase, he descended into hell which is not in the earliest forms of the creed. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We all agree with that, don't we? Mm -hmm. That's why the creed exists, so that it is something that Christians can memorize, so that we can say this is what we all believe. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence, or from there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Yes? Yes. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Growing up as a young Lutheran, the way I memorized it, we were told to say, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. Some of you may know it that way, but the original writing was I believe that Christ actually is building his church. It exists, and it is unified. It is the holy Catholic church. I believe in the communion of the saints, that the saints get together on a regular basis and edify each other and 
spend their time thinking about and reading about God. I believe in the communion of the saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Yes? Yes. And I believe in the resurrection of the body. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that. I told somebody the other day, I have no problems that a new body won't solve. I'm looking forward to that. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Okay, so why was the Apostles' Creed written? Because they saw the example in 1 Corinthians 15 of an early church creed. A testimony of what we all believe. Now, the Apostles' Creed, by the way, was written not only as a creed, but as a baptismal statement. So that people would have something to say at their baptism. I believe in this. I believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the life to come. I believe all of that. And they would recite that before they were baptized. Paul sums it up as, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve. Cephas is Peter. And then he appeared to the whole group of them. And then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of whom remain till now but some have fallen asleep. Why would Paul include that? The whole, some have fallen asleep, but they remain till this day. Because when he's writing this, it's only 20 years after it actually occurred. And so he's able to say, and a whole lot of those eyewitnesses are still alive. Go check with them. I'm not making anything up. There are actual living eyewitnesses walking on the planet who will tell you the same thing I'm telling you the same thing that is of first importance, the same thing that I preached to you when I was there, and the same thing that I'm writing down in this letter to you, that I am emphasizing over and over again the essentials of the gospel, that Jesus Christ walked on the planet, that he died for the purpose of making himself a sacrifice to redeem the people that God had chosen, that he died as the spotless lamb of God, And that he was fully, completely, utterly dead. And we buried him. And he was dead for three days. And then he got up again. And there's people you can check with to prove that that happened. It's an amazing testimony. It's an astounding thing that Paul is writing here. That not only is he laying out the basis of the Christian religion... But he's saying, our religion, our faith, our understanding is based in fact. And there is no other respected religion on the planet in the history of the world that is based in that level of fact. Everything else is based on, well, you just got to believe it. Just have to accept it. You just have to decide for yourself that this is beneficial to you and then go along with it. Christianity says, believe reality, believe what actually occurred, believe the facts. You know, Peter on the day of Pentecost did the exact same thing. He stood up 
and he stated facts. He started out with Jesus, a man whom you know, because all the people he was talking to knew it. He stated facts. I like rigor. I would not be standing on this platform I'm on if I wasn't convinced it could hold me up. I'm convinced that there's rigor to it. I saw Leon <laughs> nodding vigorously because he built this. I like rigor. I like things I can stand on. I like the fact that Christianity has this very rigorous underpinning. It has this foundation that is undeniable. It has this foundation that is based not only in history, but in eyewitness history. It is based on these things actually occurred. And yes, there are all these theological implications that go with it, but it happened. That I can trust my soul on. That I can leave this planet on, believing that I'm going to stand before God fully accepted, fully redeemed, because it is a fact that Jesus Christ came to the planet. It is a fact that he was crucified. It is a fact that he was buried because they thought he was dead. And it's a fact that he got up again and left himself eyewitness testimony so that then the church collectively could say, this is what I believe, because it's based in what actually occurred. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then again to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul is saying, I'm an eyewitness. I saw the resurrected Lord. I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Remember, I began by saying, we know a lot about Paul. We know Paul's history. We know who he is historically. We know when he lived, where he lived, where he was born, what he did. Here he admits it yet again in one of the most accepted New Testament letters. He argues again that he wasn't fit to be called an apostle because he was one who persecuted the church. And the transition between I persecuted the church and killed Christians all the way over to I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he died for my sins and that he was buried and that he rose again. That's an enormous transition. That's an enormous change in that man that can't be argued about historically. It's all right here in plain fact in front of us. What happened to him that got him from Christ killer to Christ worshiper? He told you right here, I saw the risen Christ. I saw the risen Lord. And that was enough to take me from killing, persecuting the church, all the way over to giving my back to the whip on five different occasions because of the testimony of the risen Lord. Enormous transition that he testifies to right here. I like facts. I am the least of the apostles, 
who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think we can all testify to that one. (laughs) It is only the grace of God that would get me to where I am. Here's something astounding. You ready to be astounded? I'm going to tell you something astounding. These are plain facts. These are historic facts. If you examine the testimony, if you examine the history, if you examine the evidence, these are plain facts that even the harshest critics of Christianity end up having to admit to that Paul actually did write this and that he actually did go through this transition. They may not believe in Christianity, but they admit that these are facts right here. This is what Paul was convinced of. This is what Paul believed, and it is Paul who wrote this, and we know when he wrote it. These are facts. These are cold, hard facts. They ought to be enough to convince absolutely anybody of the necessity of Jesus Christ in your life. Anybody ought to be able to look at those facts that I just laid out and come to the conclusion that they ought to run to Jesus Christ And people don't. It's astounding. So if people generally don't, why did you? Because Christianity still, for all its facts, is a revealed religion. The Holy Spirit still has to give you the eyes to see and the ears to hear and take out your stony, rebellious, angry, sinful heart and give you that heart of flesh so that you can accept, here's the amazing part, so that you can accept simple facts when they're laid in front of you. That's astounding to me that people by their nature in their flesh will not accept plain, simple, historic, provable, identifiable facts and so we all have to say by the grace of God I am what I am it was the grace of God who made you capable of believing these facts by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not proven to be vain I labored even more than all of them yet not I but the grace of God that is with me. So, whether then it is I, or whether then it is they, the other apostles, so we preach, he identified earlier of first importance. This is what we preach. I preached this to you when I was there. I'm preaching it to you again. This is of first importance. That Christ lived, that he died, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he lived again. That's what they preach. That's what I preach And that's what you believe. Is that what you believe today? Is that what you're convinced of today? Because every Christian person, to be genuinely, truly Christian, believes those fundamental facts. That Jesus Christ walked on planet Earth, that he lived, that he was crucified, that he died for your sinfulness, And then he got up again, which is proof positive that God accepted his sacrifice. And then you receive the Holy Spirit, 
which is the down payment of everything else God has promised you so that you can live out your life here on planet earth in hope in the constant expectation of what you know for sure is going to come because you are convinced of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ based on fact it's remarkable stuff I don't know about you but I like Christianity it is the most intelligent proposition in the history of the world and there are people who will live and die and never know it and you know it by the very grace of God how good has he been to you turn to Luke 22 Luke 22, starting at verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And he consented, and he began seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus to them apart from the multitude. And then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John, saying to them, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said, because he's in complete control of everything, he said, behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. You follow him into the house that he enters, and you will say to the owner of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room Prepare the Passover there. Wasn't that fortunate that that all worked out exactly like that? And they departed. They found everything just like he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said, with great desire, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We are now going to participate in our communion service. If you would, Erica, if you'd join us up here. Anybody who would like to participate in the communion with us, you are more than welcome provided you belong to Christ. If he's in you and you are firmly in him, then you are welcome to join us this morning. If you have some sort of crisis of conscience, don't do it. If you have the freedom of conscience to do it, then by all means do it. Nobody's going to look at you askance one way or the other. Once you have all picked up the unleavened bread, which that is unleavened flat bread, There is wine and there is grape juice back there. Choose accordingly. The reason that we have bits of bread, large chunks of bread, pieces of bread in the individual cups, 
is so that you have the visceral experience of actually breaking the bread. And I want you to recognize as you break it that that is the body of Christ broken for you. And that that is the blood of Christ given for you as a sacrifice. And the basic facts demonstrate that God accepted that sacrifice. This is a memorial by which we remember what Christ actually did. Because it's a memorial, we do not hold the transubstantiation. That means that the wine remains wine and the bread remains bread because when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, his flesh was still on his bones and his blood was still in his veins. When he said, this is my blood and this is my body, he said it as a type, as a memorial. And so that's what we do as well. But when you pick up the two cups, keep them in your hands and we will all participate together. All right?
Leon, would you be willing to stand up here and thank God for his broken body? Tom, then, would you be willing to pray and thank God for his shed blood? Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect sacrifice that our sins require. Our sins are indeed under the penalty of death, and that is what we deserve, for the wages of sin is death. And you have paid that penalty for us with your body that was sacrificed, that was broken, was beaten, that died and was put into the grave. It was broken for us for the remission of our sins. We indeed thank you for your great sacrifice on our behalf, though we deserved it not at all. Nothing we could do could deserve such an unbelievable sacrifice, the death of the Son of God. We again thank you in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to take communion and to recognize the spilled blood of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He paid the penalty for us that no one could possibly pay. Our sin is so great. Our sin is so constant. And we are indeed worthy of death for that sin, as your word makes clear. And we take this cup, Father, and the wine from the cup as symbolic of the blood shed on the cross for sinners like us. And we are forever in your debt. When he had given thanks, he took some bread and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me at the table, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. These things were determined for us before the foundation of the world. The life, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and praise God, the resurrection. That's everything we believe. That's everything we memorialize. And that's our constant hope. I think we should sing more love to thee.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.